From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, July 17th. Uh, We're back on the Macrocast. Tony Fratto uh, from New York City. Uh, Brendan Walsh and John Fagan from uh, Markets Policy Partners in the D.C. metropolitan area. Uh, Guys, you know, this is, you know, we don't have a big jobs report this week. We don't have, um, you know, uh, lots of other, you know, major economic news uh, this week, but we do have the end of the first week of, uh, of earnings and, you know, hearing from companies how they're dealing with uh, this economy in the second quarter. Uh, so we got the first reports on those this week and especially from the large banks. Brendan, what do we learn from them? What, are, what, 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 can we, what should we glean from, uh, from those earnings reports? So it was actually a very interesting report. So in times of crisis, apparently investment banking does quite well, especially trading. So all the big banks that have huge um, trading desks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, they, they had really their best quarter ever. And, and, and when you kind of look back on it, it shouldn't be shocking. It, COVID, it didn't come out of nowhere. We knew it was coming, but we kind of ignored it until we had to shut down. The market went down 30%. Uh, rates uh, went down. Uh, credit blew out. Then the Fed and uh, Capitol Hill stepped in and kind of saved us. And we had one of the biggest stimuluses we've ever seen. And the market came right back. You had huge volatility. Everyone sold. And then you had huge volatility. Everyone bought. That's a recipe for monstrous amounts of money for investment banks to, to make money. And, and they did. So, but what we saw was the banks that are much more skewed to investment banking really did really, really well. The banks that have both investment banking and regular commercial uh, and retail banking, they uh, lagged behind a little bit because they had to take extra uh, reserves for future uh, losses. So I think that's the setup we're going to see going into next week where the big investment banks are done reporting. And next week we have the more traditional regional banks. Uh, so I think that the focus going forward uh, next week is going to be on uh, credit and, and how, how their books are uh, performing. Because the, the, the big banks, the Bank of America, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, they, their books are, are national. Uh, regional banks, by definition, are, are more regional. So they can be more exposed uh, to, you know, like an individual company yeah. uh, that, that really is having a hard time. Uh, so uh, I think we'll get an interesting, um, you know, a picture of what's going on in individual states and regions uh, coming forward next week. Brennan, sticking sticking with the uh, the you know the big banks, I think you're right. I'm obviously I'm sorry, I mean, trading like blew it out of the water. J.P. Morgan, yeah, huge, um, you know, uh, huge report from on uh, from their trading desk uh, desks. Same with Morgan Stanley, we saw yesterday. We, but we also saw, um, you know, fairly significant um, uh, loan loss provisioning. Also, the provisioning is is uh, was pretty huge. And I don't know if we've totaled it up for the banks who reported this this week with, their, with the totals they have in. Terms yeah, of- the big guys were all around, you know, five billion dollars, which which was in line. So it should be stated that the big banks were in line, other than Wells Fargo. So Wells Fargo was um, a, a disappointment. But, but they've had their own problems going on for, for a while. And, and uh, I think Charlie Sharp is doing a good job of, of uh, putting the, the bank on, back on right footing. But, you know, it, 
a bank that size, trillion dollar bank, takes a little while to, to fix your loan book. But all of them also did say, we have no idea what the, no one gave any guidance on, on the future. But I, I guess- the guidance was they have no guidance. They said, don't expect second, third quarter trading to be the same as second quarter trading. <laughs> it's a little bit of disappointment to the market. That's, somebody at one, one, I was talking to somebody at one of the large banks um, the other day and they said, uh, and they said, yeah, the, the you know the, the traders all think they're brilliant now. Yeah, no, <laughs> like it's hysterical when it comes to bonus. Time. Yeah, like, yeah, I made the bank seven trillion dollars. Well, not really. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, like that, that, that was those that, that was a quarter. Yeah, you, you answered we, the phone. <laughs> right. That was a quarter that we hope we never ever see again, exactly. and, we'll, and we'll likely never ever see again. Knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah, it was certainly surprising, and we mentioned the very low visibility with guidance mostly pulled into the second already before the second quarter and yeah. so the and that, that's surprise, true of every every company not just banks yeah in terms of earnings it's a pretty small sample size so far only 45 companies of the S&P 500 have reported so far but we've got 86% of reporting companies posting an upside earnings surprise and the upside earnings surprise the quantum of surprises is 17 percentage points. That's a, that's a, that's a really high, 17% is a really high uh, earning surprise. So this is, this is setting the tone for, you know, obviously, again, very low visibility into the coming quarters. We knew that. Uh, but, you know, this, this quarter analysts really haven't gotten a good handle on what these numbers are going to be. And we saw that with Netflix last evening yeah. when they came out with their projections for, for uh, additional subscribers over the coming months. And those projections were a country mile from where estimates were. This is just gonna be a recurring theme where you know, where analysts are, aren't really even in the ballpark of some of these numbers. And, and, and what's happening on the earnings is the same that's happening on um, you know, the macro indicators. So you know, we see some spending going back up, but then you know, we have a COVID problem and it pulls back down. It's the same with earnings, just because you know, a bunch of people signed up for Netflix in the first quarter when we were on quarantine doesn't mean that the same amount are going to sign up when, you know, you can go outside again. But again, we're shutting down maybe again. So maybe fourth quarter will look better. <laughs> Thus far in earnings season, all the variability and the clouded guidance from the banks and the, you know, the disappointment from Netflix that came out last night, it's not affecting overall sentiment so far. The S&P has been a little bit back and forth, but still to the upside. We've seen some underperformance of tech this week, but that's more of a function of just a, how outrageous the rally has been up until now, taking a little bit of a breather. Netflix disappointment hasn't really weighed on the rest of tech, at least so far today. So we saw in the first quarter, companies getting something of a free pass. Obviously, the, the discrete announcement effect would impact stocks on that day, that daily basis, but broadly speaking, investors still have their view on the horizon and as cloudy as it might yeah. be. And, well, uh, so, so for Netflix, uh, five of the last six earnings, uh, their stock has been down the, the day of earnings and uh, Netflix is at all time highs. What I didn't look closely at Netflix. I was, I was focusing on, on some of the you know, broaders. And, and by the way, like, I wasn't even looking forward to Netflix. Because right, yeah. I just assumed, right, that they're they're crushing it and ought to be crushing it, and so I didn't really care all that much. And then I saw it's a, a disappointment. What was the disappointment? Well, well, they still are crushing it, but basically, yeah. so many people signed up for Netflix in the first half of the year 
that the second half of the year, they, they pulled forward a huge amount of, of demand. So they're not expecting the same amount of new subscriptions and also advertising is going to be not at the same trajectory. But mm-hmm. that's actually a good example. So, John, so you were, you were talking about the, the S&P and the uh, NASDAQ. They're kind of back. Well, the NASDAQ's at all-time highs and the S&P's fairly close. Is that, is that story being told across other markets? Uh, is that something we can glean, you know, as a macro data point or are, are other markets showing um, um, the pain of the COVID uh, crisis? Yeah, certainly looking across, if you cast an eye toward the Russell 2000, which is the more mid-cap market, that is still down 12% on the year. And certainly within the S&P 500, as we've discussed in the past, the just yawning disparity between the performance of the different sectors. I'm looking at the, uh, the KBW Bank Index, which is the major, major uh, U.S. mega banks uh, stock basket. That's down 34% on the year uh, when the S&P 500 is essentially flat. It's down half a percent year on yeah, year. Yeah, that's shocking. And when you look at the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ composite is up 17% year to date uh, and just, you know, knocking on the door again of all time highs, which we put in last Friday. It, this is a, a, a just a, a massive, massive a divergence of performance. And it speaks to, you know, winners and losers of the pandemic, the stocks that are, you know, deemed bulletproof uh, and, and winners like, like Netflix and like Facebook. And, uh, and they just, continue to to rally aside from you know some <laughs> technical divots in their uptrend is all we've seen it really is a t- i mean it's a tale of two economies right now isn't it um and it seems like those those um you know i mean i mean large companies you know i love i love all, i love the big companies that they're they're, they're you know they're uh, innovative and globally active and this is I'm, I'm nothing to nothing to say negative about them but they're in, you know they're, they're in positions where they can unless you're an airline, um, you know, you can find yep. ways to adapt and, um, and uh, you know, and, and support for, you know, like basic underlying support for capital markets helps them out a great deal. Uh, you know, PPP helped a lot of small uh, companies, um, you know, kept, uh, you know, the, kept people employed um, for, for a good period of time. Companies in the middle, like you do, these are names that you don't know. Yep. Like they're like the names, like when you drive out to the airport, you know, and you see companies along the side of the road, and they all have names on them. Like the, right? They're all doing really good business. They're all really, yeah. really great companies, but like you don't know their names. They're not really usually, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, to, you know, B to C kinds of businesses, or usually B to B kinds of businesses. So you don't you have no reason to know their names. Those companies are all having really tough times, and uh, and the same kind of support hasn't been there for them. No one was pushing money at them. We saw it with like the the um, even if you know things like the um, the Main Street Lending Program. That's a great great point because yeah. so the Main Street Lending Program just purchased twelve million dollars of their first loans. I, I can't and, even. I don't think people. I, I mean, it is that is it's mind boggling, yeah. right? And it's yeah. because it, it goes to the exact point you were making. The, the Main Street lending problem is essentially giving you the same, if not maybe slightly worse uh, terms than your bank would. Right. So good companies can either tap capital markets or just go to their bank and get a loan. They don't need to go to the, the, the Fed for this. So if, if the Fed wants the Main Street lending program to do it, they have 
they don't have to quite go as far as PPP where you don't have to repay it, but you have to put it at such amazing terms that, that you're giving these banks a lifeline, not just a loan. And, and also, you have to also wonder what, like, it, 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 you know, I mean, so PPP was essentially a cash grant mm-hmm. uh, for companies. If you used it the right way, it was a cash grant. Um, may, may need to do that again for a lot of companies. But for these businesses that are, you know, sl- li- mid-market kinds of um, uh, uh, businesses, even if they're in the Russell 2000, they're, they're larger and they're publicly traded, right? But, but the question is, um, what, what is the business case for them, right? If it's one thing if you're talking about a lifeline to get through a couple months, yeah. but if, you, if it looks like this is going to go on for longer, you don't want to borrow against that. Right. You I can't, know. Right. You're not going to. And I think that. that's the reality is until we get a vaccine, what you see is kind of what you get. You know, we, every time that people have reopened and kind of gone willy nilly, infections spike and you have to shut down. There, there's rumors that Texas is going to shut down today. So so, you know, Dr. Fauci said, you know, I think we can have one by the end of the year. So if you're a business and I think if you're the, the Fed or if you're Capitol Hill, you have to assume 2020 is done it's written off. What you see is what you get. We're not reopening. So we have what, you know, five, six months to, to get these, these companies through or they go bankrupt. I, I don't know, you know, whether that's a big check to write, to keep, you know, whatever, 20% of the economy is still open, but, but that's the reality. You know, gyms, I'm not going to gym. We can tell. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to the gym either, Brendan. <laughs> I am going to the kitchen a lot, though. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so that way, so we had earnings. Um, why don't we take a break here? Come back, talk about. We got some ECB. Um, I've been to get global a little bit and just think about what you know what the rest of the uh, world is doing. We focus on U.S. you know quite a bit. But I love the. Love, I want to dive into what uh, what ECB is doing and uh, the way they're trying to support that recovering economy. You're listening to the MacroCast. Check out HPS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, bringing you the latest on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Available on your favorite streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. Tune in to the latest episodes and learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. All right, we're back on the MacroCast. Um, Guys, we're on the um, you know we're on the verge of uh, you know, Europe passing what will be a you know pretty big and historic uh, fiscal package, um, unusual for them, uh, unprecedented actually for them, uh, and uh, and the support's going to be there. But I think what's you know what's interesting in a way it's you know they're kind of late. Uh, it's been it's been a long time coming. I would have loved to have seen this uh, you know a couple months ago. At the same time, something they're not laid on was, uh, you know, bending the curve on um, uh, on COVID, on uh, the number of cases and deaths, and like whatever whatever they did, they did it right. And 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 you know, you look at, compared to the United States, these are um, these economies diverged uh, with respect to COVID uh, about a month and a half ago, where you know, not, you know U.S. Uh, cases. Uh, were, uh, continue to climb. Now we have cases, hospitalizations, and deaths all climbing. Um, Europe bent it down, flattened it uh, almost to nothing now. Um, where uh, you have a lot of countries who have, you know, reporting, you know, almost no cases, no deaths. Um, 
And, uh, and it's showing up in their economic results. They've been, they have been, because they were disciplined, they have been able to reopen. Um, you know, Brendan, I think you, you told me some, some data point about, uh, in Ger you know, Germany, about German restaurants. Yeah. So open table, you know, where you, the online, uh, a restaurant booking. So in Germany, reservations are actually up 5.5% a uh, year over year, where in the United States, um, we're down 64%. So, you know, people complained about the lockdown, but if you did a proper three month lockdown, you actually got the virus out of the, the country enough. You can, you can properly reopen with, um, with proper restrictions, but come Memorial day, we wanted to have a fun summer and we reopened and we're paying the price now. Europe's definitely had a very good couple of months. The starting gun from where we sat was the Franco German proposal in uh, mid May where they came and presented this at the time, it was a $500 billion euro fiscal package that contained this element of fiscal federalism that the Europeans had shied away from yep. for years. And yep. it had always been such an Achilles heel of the union. And if you- And it took the markets able, a while to, to, to realize the significance of this. Yeah, and, uh, and to put that on the table and to basically raise money in the regular proportionate European way, and then, but to spend it where it's needed Presumably, the Southern European countries that had been having a much more, uh, you know, adverse experience with COVID, that was novel. And uh, certainly structuring it to emphasize grants instead of loans, that was also a huge part of, of, the, of really the step forward that this package represented. And then ahead of the, uh, ahead of the June uh, European, uh, ahead of the European Commission leaders meeting later that month, the final bill was even upsized from that uh, to 750 billion. Billion, yeah. And then having even more uh, favorable and sort of fiscal, uh, fiscally uh, cementing kind of terms, they're still negotiating it. This is Europe, <laughs> but you know the fact that the fact that Chancellor Merkel and President Macron and ECB President uh, Lagarde are all pulling for this thing. You know, we, we all we all know that the what they call the frugal four. It's uh, it's Austria. <laughs> it's yeah. So it's Austria. It's the Netherlands. It's uh, Denmark and Sweden are trying to steer this thing back toward toward loans instead of grants and to uh, not tie themselves together in such a tight uh, fiscal union. What they call you know the debt transfer union or so forth. But that that is. You know, they're negotiating it uh, today and tomorrow at the July uh, EU Leaders Summit. During this period of time, the ECB at their June meeting came back. Uh, the European Central Bank uh, got even more aggressive than expected in terms of uh, beefing up their, uh, their asset purchase programs. We just had a meeting earlier this week, and President Lagarde was, again, very forceful in her commitment to following through on these asset purchase programs. There was a sense and there was some noise from European, uh, so from some other European officials that maybe, maybe they're doing so well on the COVID containment side that they don't need to follow through. Well, <laughs> Christine Lagarde put, put, put that to bed and, uh, and redoubled their, uh, their commitment on that front. Expectations are that they may even do more down the road. And, uh, and that, that's combined and it's shown up in European asset, in European assets over the last couple of months. So since that mid-May period, the euro is up about 5.7% versus the dollar. That's a pretty big move. Huge. Yeah. Up toward about 12 month highs. 
the, uh, the Euro stocks index, which is still on a year to date basis, uh, underperforming the S&P 500 is up over 20 about 22% over that period of time versus a not too shabby 9% for the S&P 500. The S&P 500 got a pretty big head start. Uh, so it's flat for the year, whereas the European index is still down, uh, let's see, about uh, 10% on the year. But uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a really meaningful, uh, that's a really meaningful move uh, over the, over the past, uh, over the past couple of months with things really uh, giving Europe a tailwind here that, uh, that they hopefully will capitalize on and come to an agreement on this historical fiscal package. We should, uh, I mean, we shouldn't be sanguine about what the, the, you know, what, you know, what the economy looks like in Europe, right? Because the hit, the hole is big. Um, yep. it looks like, I mean, it looks like they're pointed in the right direction and we should feel good about, um, their, their, uh, their outlook and their, and their direction and get, you know, getting out of it. And they seem to be doing all the right things. The hole's big though. Right. I mean, uh, I think, uh, Lagarde estimated, uh, the, 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 you know, GDP loss this year, something in the eight to 12% range, you know, which is, um, pretty, you know, pretty bigger than the global financial crisis, pretty massive. I remember uh, when she uh, was elected, you, you made the point that she could be the right person for the job because of her background. She, she's good at bringing people together. That, uh, that statement turned out to be way truer than we could have ever <laughs> imagined. We were, we, were, we were pretty prescient, weren't we? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we didn't think she was going to need it that quickly. <laughs> uh, but uh, she, but she, she probably is the right person for the, uh, for the job at the right time. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, uh, very quickly, we saw Chinese numbers um, uh, too. You know, they they reported uh, you know positive growth of about three point was it three point two percent or yeah. so. We believe those numbers. You know, it's a question always with the Chinese, but um, you know, yeah. They, they, and do we believe the stock market rally, John? Uh, you have more experience with China than uh, the rest of us. Yeah, grain of salt is always how you want to take Chinese economic numbers, but certainly they've over the last during the, during a COVID period, they've been you know publishing figures that would previously have been unthinkable. You know, negative uh, negative what was it negative six point eight in the first quarter. Yeah, uh, that that's a pretty that's a pretty low number. Three point two isn't exactly shooting the lights out. Uh, they came up with uh, we also got some June economic data retail sales, industrial production, and fixed asset investment. Retail sales still came in a little bit light. And, uh, you know, the commentary from corporates, I think, is going to be pretty interesting. We're hearing that, you know, on the manufacturing side, there's a sense that China is coming back, but that's being hampered by depressed demand in the rest of the world, in the U.S. and Europe, so their, their export markets. And, uh, and so that's maybe holding things back uh, to some extent. But it is interesting to see that retail sales were the laggard in China when they're supposed to be, you know, yeah. closest yeah. in the world to resuming normal, uh, normal course of business and, uh, and economic behavior. So, uh, you know, there was a at the very beginning of this month, the state media in China started putting out indications that it was a good time to start buying stocks front page. <laughs> You know, on the security, the, one of their securities uh, newspapers front page. I should laugh. I mean, we, 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 have a, we have a president who regularly does the same thing. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. a known playbook. But you know, this is an unknown in Beijing as well. They uh, they cut the uh, they cut some of the uh, the, re the the restrictions on margin debt. 
for speculative activity and boom it was you know it went straight up the the, yeah. the shanghai composite rocketed northward and uh and but within <laughs> almost as swiftly as it started the uh the leadership in beijing appears to have gotten cold feet on this and uh is now talking down the market this is <laughs> This is, this is not <laughs> well they, they've also you know we've had we've had we've had some um you know a little bit of choppiness um with uh, on the COVID response too right so they, they've had they've had to uh you know do some additional lockdowns again yep. um in china uh you know some worrisome um reports out of korea and uh, and japan also over the yeah past you know when when beijing goes back to the well they've obviously not taken the foot on the gas kind of approach to stimulus that they did in 2009 and 2015-16 when they were basically throwing the kitchen sink in terms of credit at their economy to get it back up to where it had been and uh, recover from these big divots that we've seen. This is a much more measured approach to Chinese stimulus. They are not gunning the engines here. Uh, that's been consistent messaging. The fact that they kind of went back to the well with this, you know, boost up the stock market as a, as kind of a tactic to get animal spirits going kind of shows that maybe they're they're trying to twist some other dials. But it's it's a it's a little uh, it's a little puzzling, and and the outlook uh, for for their growth has been you know good not great it seems. One thing I do want to talk about, um, you know, we, we've let it go for a little bit, but. Um... But uh, maybe we come back in the next segment, and you know we, we haven't we haven't really dived into you know the U.S. China uh, you know U.S. China uh, competition. Uh, this competition. That's a nice way to. That's a nice way to. Say it. It's not adequate. It's a complex. Um, it's a complex. Uh, uh, if it is a competition or uh, you know antagonism, well, maybe we'll come back and let's come back in the next segment. And, uh, and and take a take a little bit closer look at what's going on with the U.S. and China right now, and what it means uh, for uh, for the rest of the year. Um, you're listening to the Macrocast, and we'll be right back. Markets Policy Partners provides sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com or visit them on Twitter at marketspolicy. All right, we're back on the macrocast, um, guys. Like you know, I don't know. I was struggling for like the word. I mean, of uh, you know what we call this. You know, Cold War has already been used uh, for right. three, and like I don't want to call it Cold War Two, but it's it, you know. But for those of us who, if you're my age, you sort of remember this kind of um, you know bilateral competition for uh, ideas and uh, you know uh, economic and strategic advantage and we're really seeing that with uh, with, with the US and China right now like you know some of the flashpoints that we that we see you know aside from the trade relationship which does have a macro uh, impact a lot of these things don't have a macroeconomic impact um, you know if if the US which is you know since I was like very successful in um, uh, getting the UK to uh, you know, not to, uh, you, you know, allow Huawei for its 5G uh, systems. It doesn't have a macro impact, but definitely has a strategic uh, impact on the, on the relationship. And look, it may have been China doing it to itself uh, because of its treatment of Hong Kong. You know, that may have been more persuasive than 
Trump administration lobbying, but regardless, uh, these are the kinds of things, these sort of little proxy, um, you know, proxy wars, strategic advantage, looking what's going on in South China Sea, treatment of North Korea, uh, the NBA will be caught up in this again yep. because uh, China is such a huge market for them once NBA is allowed to play basketball again. And they're like, the, I think we're going to be looking at this for a long time uh, for both, you know, both economies, both countries searching for hegemony uh, in uh, the way to do business and searching for example, and uh, for advantage. And I don't think that changes even if we end up with a, uh, with a Biden administration. Uh, that's the most important point. Yeah. But the we, Huawei we, issue, it, that's a national security issue. And basically the U S told them if, if you want to talk to, to us, you know, our CIA, you can't be on Huawei because we can't trust that uh, the Chinese aren't tapping us. And, and that would be true, whether it's Biden, whether it's, Mayor Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah, and that's the, the, obviously a Biden administration would come at this issue with a different style and a different set of priorities. Uh, Joe Biden has spoken about this in some of his uh, in some of his speeches recently, and said, you know, characteristically, the emphasis would be on a multi more multilateral approach. The Trump administration doesn't necessarily work that way but they certainly do pressure allies. And we saw this week, the fact that the UK banned Huawei from its 5G telecom network, that was a big win for the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is, you know, something that is part and parcel of what we're characterizing. You know, we, we discussed the, you know, the sort of tired cold war analogy. It's, it, it's, it's easy to default to that kind of framework because what this is doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. We reference it, as basically a multi-front long-term policy campaign to counter China. So, you know, counter China is the, is the approach and the fronts most obviously right now are on trade, certainly tech, 5G and Huawei yep. investment. We've seen the uh, issues about delisting Chinese companies in the U S and, uh, and the threats there uh, over their lack of disclosure, human rights slash Hong Kong. This mm -hmm. is the, this is, this is, beginning to be more prominent within the Trump administration it would certainly be more prominent if there's a Joe Biden, a Biden administration. Supply chain is kind of flying under the radar, but that's yep. part of this national security uh, discussion, which is going on about how to protect our critical national functions, which are not just, you know, medical supply chains. They are really across the board and how to first of all, understand them, and then whether we can actually bring them onshore or replicate them here onshore uh, for, you know, potential future issues. And this is all kind of going to the other front, which is the geostrategic front. Yeah. It doesn't show up, you know, geostrategic issues don't really show up in financial markets. It's really hard to price in. But we saw some heated rhetoric around the South China Sea and the U.S. specifically uh, specifically rejecting China's territorial claims there, which is something that, that the U.S. had refrained from doing before. It had, the U.S. had merely pushed for freedom of navigation, uh, but now this is a much more explicit posture. The Chinese obviously pushed back. It's, it's, it's a real issue. It's, it's hard to see us not um, uh, spinning into a more um, confrontational posture. Right, where it seemed like if we were talking about this, you know, and we were talking about this last year, the confrontation was to gain advantage in uh, in trade negotiations, and it was largely confined 
to differences on understanding of the trading relationship between between the U.S. and China. Um, I think to, to me that like the spark of Hong Kong and how it bled into um, you know the, the the NBA became aware you know the Americans became more aware of Hong Kong because of uh, because of the NBA. We, we always we tend to ignore the culture you know uh, the culture piece of it. I, I see us moving into the you know concerns on the cultural relationship between the two countries and things like TikTok, right? On these questions of human rights and uh, treatment of people, Uyghurs, um, the, where I could see those issues elevating in importance, and where those you know which was a trade dispute, um, we are now seeing in strategic and cultural um, uh, 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 you know confrontation that will then go back and feed the, you know, more confrontation on trade and other reasons. So if you're market participants thinking about that relationship, if you're looking at companies that have uh, extensive supply chains uh, in China, if you have companies that rely on the Chinese market is either an export market or if you're like a General Motors where you build lots of products in China for the Chinese market, it becomes a very, uh, you know, an increasingly complex uh, environment and, and much more difficult to uh, anticipate the direction that it's going to go. And, uh, and so I think that's a risk going forward. And again, like, I mean, we, we said this, you know, regardless of the Biden administration, the truth is I could actually see Biden administration uh, being, you know, less, um, you know, the rhetoric yeah. might change the means might change, right? I mean, it's from a bilateral, uh, you know, seeking bilateral solutions to multilateral solutions, but not at all a weakening and maybe even in a tough- It could be a strengthening, yeah. Strength, a toughening of the relationship um, uh, in a Biden administration, if only because, you know, we, we, we've seen from President Trump and from his, you know, Rose Garden uh, talk the other day, um, Clearly, you know, the, the, his point is going to be that Biden is weak on China. So you can see Biden trying to overshoot on being tough on China. Yeah. I mean, if you can bring the five eyes together and have a unified uh, response to China rather than kind of attacking the, each five eye individually to get what to bully them into what do it you want to attack China, that could end up uh, in, a, in a much more... Um, Strict, uh, I guess, is the word. Uh, a response to uh, to, to Chinese uh, policy. Yep. Yeah, and yesterday, very interestingly, we've seen this theme before from the Trump administration. But uh, Attorney General Barr's remarks yesterday on China, which were very hawkish, notably pointed to U.S. companies, specifically Disney and Apple, among them, as basically yep. caving in yeah. to Chinese d d demands from the Chinese Communist Party from Beijing to, you know, censor and, and uh, behave in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. And he urged U.S. corporate leaders to understand the stakes. And this is a, you know, both, neither side has really gotten to the point where they're ready to say, all right, to global corporations, all right, pick a side, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> that is... By the, the way... The I, 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 clear. Yeah, and, and look, look for all for all company. I mean, companies everywhere have to uh, respect local runs. Not to like, not 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 apologizing uh, for it. I wish you could be, you know, more. Um, uh, I wish everyone could be a little bit stronger on, uh, you know, on concerns with China, but not just China. I mean, we see this in, you know, in lots of local markets, whether it's Saudi Arabia, yep. or you know, uh, countries in Africa and Europe, and uh, you know, and China. So like the, but. Um, China is certainly going to be a particular 
flashpoint. And I would be looking, the thing we'll be looking for are, you know, some of the policy commitments that, um, that either Trump or um, uh, Biden make over the next uh, four or five months, because um, uh, they're going to execute that, whatever they, whatever they, the, the commitments they make in the campaigns, I, I guarantee you they will try to execute them in 2021. Yeah, my, my favorite one that came out uh, this week was that we're going to put restrictions on uh, the members of the Chinese Communist Party, which is 90 million people. <laughs> that would be a, that'd be a third of America. <laughs> well, hey, um, uh, we have, uh, you know, earnings continue next week. Um, what, what are we looking at? Uh, what, should we, what should we expect next week? Uh, so a, a lot of it is the... Um, the uh, sorry, uh, the regional banks. So th that'll that'll give us uh, some uh, interesting macro data points in terms of how each uh, individual region uh, region is going. Uh, and th but then we get just normal companies again. So uh, things like IBM and Coca Cola, uh, Tesla is always fun. Uh, we get some of the airlines, Southwest, um, American. We saw this week that American and uh, JetBlue are going to uh, kind of team together. Uh, Royal Caribbean. Uh, and Verizon. So um, it, it's a, a pretty broad base of, of you know, yeah. American uh, companies. And then uh, we get um, the, the, the uh, market uh, PMIs uh, globally. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll get a sense of how the manufacturing, uh, but also the, the service sector, they, they do both manufacturing and service. So uh, we'll, we'll fill out the picture a little bit more uh, next week with what, we, with what we hear there. Yep. All right, guys. Good show. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll be back next week with the Macrocast. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.